The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. I am very excited about this week's episode, as our featured content has been planned especially for podcast purposes. And as I speak, I am here in the Guild offices, joined by the Director of School Programs and Community Engagement, Stuart Holt. Hi, everyone. And Stuart will be my co-host for our episode today, and we are joined by a room of special guests for an interview episode with members of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. We have the Met Opera Orchestra's Principal Bassoonist, Billy Short. Hi. We have Principal Timpanist, Jason Haheim. Hi, everybody. And we have Jessica Phillips, who is the orchestra's acting principal clarinetist. Hello. So a very warm welcome to all of you. Thanks so much Thanks. for having Thank us. You. Yeah. Great. Uh, we are very excited to be able to get the inside scoop on life inside the Met Orchestra pit. So Naomi and I came up with all kinds of questions that we wish that we could ask orchestra members, and we hopefully feel that our listeners will also appreciate these questions. But before we dive into these questions, uh, we really want to get to know you and learn a little bit more. Uh, so we'd like to start with introductions by asking you to share your name again, what instrument you play, the number of years that you've played with the Met Orchestra, and a brief bio about yourself. How about we let ladies go first? Oh my gosh. Okay. Wow. Um, all right. My name is Jessica Phillips, and again, I play the clarinet. This is my 15th season, I think, in the orchestra. I'm pretty sure. Sometimes it goes by really fast, sometimes it goes by really slow, but I think it's 15. And I've been acting principal for maybe five of those years, so I've um, really had an amazing opportunity to play both roles in the section. In addition to the fact that I also play the E-flat clarinet on many uh, of the operas that require it, so I've kind of played everything, except for bass clarinet, which I do play in one opera, Ariadne of Naxos. That's it. What else do, we, what else do you want me to elaborate Where'd on? Where did you grow up? Where did I grow up? I'm from um, Colorado, and then I moved to Boston in the fifth grade, and I started all kinds of musical education there. They have a fantastic youth orchestra program there called the uh, Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra, which I did on the weekends at New England Conservatory. And then I went to school at Barnard College, and here in New York City, and I did a joint program with Manhattan School of Music, and um, I was a political science major and a music minor, and I studied with the former principal clarinetist here in the Met Opera Orchestra, Ricardo Morales, and David Weber, who was in the Met uh, in 1941 to 1945, I believe. So I kind of had already a lot of that operatic stuff in my in my uh, in my teaching blood. So yeah, great. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Um, I'm Jason. Jason Haheim, Principal Timpany. Uh, this is rounding up my third season in the Met Orchestra. It's been a thrill so far. 
Um, I grew up in Minnesota, uh, a town called Chaska. Went to college there, actually, small private liberal arts college called, wait for it, Gustavus Adolphus College. <laughs> Gustavus, for sure. Uh, had a wonderful time there, double majored in music and physics. And then, yeah, so my, my path from there got a little bit unorthodox. I actually went to grad school for electrical engineering. Um, along the way, went to the Aspen Music Festival, realized I very much loved music. I wanted to pursue this kind of life in in the arts, particularly in the orchestra. Um, and by that point, I was going to be moving to Chicago, where I had a job offer to work at a nanotechnology company. And I actually did that for 10 years, living in Chicago, while I auditioned into the Civic Orchestra, which is sort of a training orchestra with the Chicago Symphony. Um, and along the way, was just practicing and working and taking auditions, and was fortunate enough to win this one. And so here I am. Thanks for having me. So my name is Billy Short. Uh, I'm the principal bassoonist in the in the Met Orchestra, uh, and this is my fourth season. And I'm just realizing now that I'm the only one of us who only has degrees in music mm -hmm. from what I affectionately refer to as band college, yeah. <laughs> um, which is really weird. But before that, I grew up in Texas uh, in a town called Round Rock that is not as small as it sounds based on the name Round Rock. Uh, and I, I sort of came up through the Texas band program, and then I went to school in in Philadelphia at the Curtis Institute of Music, and returned to Texas to go to Rice University for my master's, and then straight out of there was fortunate enough to sort of get get thrown into the frying pan, as the saying goes, <laughs> of, of the Met, <laughs> or from the frying pan into the Met fire, maybe. That yeah. that that might be it, but but I'll just refer to the men as a frying pan. Frying pan. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people from Texas. It yeah, does we're everywhere. Really yeah. Well, Texas, it's kind of it was kind of an amazing place to grow up, uh, because you know in Texas you have obviously your football at the high school level, which is a huge pseudo religion, and then where you have a football team, you have to have a marching band. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And oh, so right. the 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 band culture in Texas is incredible and incredibly competitive. So uh, so a lot of us uh, from from Texas who got serious about it in high school, I think, have, have gone on to have professional careers. The and listeners might like to know that you were on snare line in the marching band. I, I marched on the drum line <laughs> all four years of high school. Oh, gosh. I yes. marched uh, bass drum my Ooh. freshman and sophomore years. I marched snare my junior year. And my favorite story, though, is from when I was playing timpani and an amplified bassoon solo my senior year of high school. And I will never forget, we were at a marching competition, and our band advanced from the prelims into the finals. And our percussion director was listening to a tape that the percussion judge had recorded, because they, they record their comments into this, into this tape while you're performing, and then you can listen back. And all throughout the, the second of our three-movement show, uh, which was the quote-unquote bassoon concerto, the, the percussion judge, all he could say was, Oh, that bassoon is awful. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I, I know this isn't my caption, but can you please do something to turn it down? I mean, that sound is just terrible. <laughs> so that... That, and now that, look where you are. Yeah. You know yeah. what? Do you think that, he's listening that, today? I, 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 I sincerely hope so. And 
and hopefully someday I'll be able to incorporate that into my bio. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. hailed by such and such marching band judge as just awful. I think it's what interesting that all three of you actually came from states that have a strong focus on music education for like young kids. I mean, yeah. the state of Minnesota is well known as a bastion for music education and choral singing. Boston has a long tradition of, you know, music education and music in schools and musical training. And Texas, as you said, has this long band tradition, but they also have a huge choral, uh, both traditional choral music and show choir Mm -hmm. tradition. So interesting that all three of you come from those really strong education states. Absolutely. Music in schools works. It It sure does. Yeah. And I mean, it's 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 so interesting because, also, I would say beyond all the the aspects of the musical education, those were some of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. we all kept each other out of trouble, or you know, like in, in certain ways, we made good decisions together because there was there was a common goal of of this is something that is really important to you, and so you get these things like discipline and practice and learning how to be alone and, and figure these things out, not to mention just counting and doing all, all kinds of music. I mean, we did Mahler too, like wow. junior wow. year in, yeah. in high school in, in Symphony Hall. Yeah, that's I mean, What an amazing, amazing experience, right, to have that. So we were, Yeah, all the band nerds, I mean, we stuck together, but it's crazy. I'm probably for you guys had the same experience where, like, we were in – you know, band or orchestra or whatever together, but that same crop kind of moved through different parts of the school. We were on the Knowledge Bowl team, student council, whatever, and it was just this very kind of like unified and enriching experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good people. Mm-hmm. Billy's not speaking. Though. <laughs> he hates all his I'm just wondering, you, you, you said that, that your circle of friends in high school sort of helped you make good decisions. Do you attribute your poor decision-making since then to, to your new friends, namely us? <laughs> Because you don't wear cowboy boots, that that's the reason why I get into trouble now. Yeah. <laughs> you can make that a new choice. Yeah. Make, you that, make a, that a good decision. <laughs> um, we speaking of practice and sort of what that's like. I think one of the big questions that our listeners have, and both Naomi and I said immediately we wanted to ask about was, what is a day in the life like? How much time are you spending on your own personal practice? How much time are you spending in rehearsal? Are you working outside gigs on a given day? Um, and what does that sort of look like for each one of you? Specifically because you all play different instruments. So, mm-hmm. you know, do you have different schedules or different time commitments within any given day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to take today, for example, today's a, a good microcosm, actually. Uh, we just had the dress rehearsal of Electra this morning. Uh, this evening is the HD scratch taping of Roberto Devereaux uh, by Donizetti, which means that they're taping it as if it's one of our Saturday afternoon broadcasts, mm-hmm. but once once the broadcast has happened, when they um, when they edit it for, you know, archival purposes for, for, for release, they have something that they can splice in in case something went better on one particular performance than another. Uh, and then this afternoon, I'll be going home and practicing, certainly Electra, just because it just never gets easier, even though we're already, you know, we have the first performance bearing down on us. 
Uh, we have Otello coming back soon, which is a very, very difficult part that I need to spend some time with. Uh, we have Tchaikovsky 6 coming up after the opera season ends for one of our Carnegie Hall concerts that, that has a demanding principal bassoon part. I mean, the very opening of it uh, is very soft and low, which is different from what a principal bassoon ordinarily has to do. So, for example, But, you know, the, the other facet of my job that I have to do on a very regular basis is make reeds. So the reed is the mouthpiece for the clarinet, for the bassoon, for the oboe, these instruments. The clarinet is a single reed instrument, meaning, meaning it's a single piece of wood that vibrates against a plastic mouthpiece. Whereas the bassoon and oboe are double reed instruments. They're two pieces of wood strapped together that vibrate against each other. And that's a very exacting but inconsistent process, which requires that you continually be making new reads just so that you can perform well. I, I sort of liken playing on a bad read to what Jason has to do, playing the timpani, but instead of mallets, you're, you're playing with wet noodles. <laughs> it's a sound I go for sometimes, but I, you know, only, only occasionally. Right. So I have a question, though. Why do you have to make the reads yourselves? I mean, why can't you just by the reeds? That's a really good question. So the first 
part of the answer is what I have to do for my job. So playing principal bassoon, my job is primarily sitting in sort of the tenor and upper registers of the instrument, comfortably being able to project, being able to, to be expressive. This is very different from a second bassoon's job. And their job is primarily, they need to have a reed that can play low and soft. They need to really keep the pitch down and be able to sort of blend and support the principal player wherever possible. It's, it's just as musically demanding a position, it's just a different approach. So that has to do with the reeds. Then there's the specific instrument that I play. You know, I'm one of two co-principal bassoons. My counterpart, Trish Rogers, who has had an incredible career here at the Met and does the job as well as I think anyone possibly could, you take one of her reeds and put it on my bassoon and it's about a quarter tone flat, meaning it's about halfway down to the next note lower because wow. her instrument plays higher naturally than mine is. Uh, then there's just the difference in physiology. I mean, there's, there's what you personally feel comfortable doing how much air you want to push through the instrument, how much sort of lip strength you have in your embouchure, how much you want to sort of chomp down on the reed as opposed to having the reed do work for you. And so it's really an intensely personal thing, actually. Um, and so while there are, in, in some cases, people who do buy their reeds, uh, I don't know of anyone who doesn't adjust their reeds to the very, very final finished stages themselves. Plus there's weather. Plus there's weather. <laughs> also weather. Which can really wreak... A it, lot can, of havoc. it can wreak a lot of right. havoc. But this, I'm assuming, takes a lot of time it, to make your own reeds. So would you ever consider hiring a reed-making minion to help mm. you, like a personal minion to do this for I'm you? Wait, I, I wish I could, but I'm just way too persnickety to, to entrust that <laughs> to someone else. Now we're really else. getting somewhere. We, we can all attest to this. He's, he's very persnickety. Okay. <laughs> so, Jessica, that would lead me to ask you, mm -hmm. I'm assuming from that comment, you don't make your own reeds for your clarinet. No, no. But do you alter them? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, my mouthpiece is rubber. It's not plastic. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually really good to know. Um, I uh, do, most clarinets do buy the reeds, although some do make their own. And I put mine through a process of kind of like stabilizing the cane. And so I, I break them in and then I might alter them or a little bit uh, something here or there. Uh, but mostly I kind of do them seasonally so that then they're, they're uh, ready for winter or they're mm -hmm. ready for the spring, something like that. But uh, it also could slightly depend on the repertoire, not too much. Um, but then as, as things, the weather changes, the pitch can get affected. So, but yeah, we don't have to do that. We just have a lot more notes than this is That's true. So we need to practice more. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's a throwdown. You're not wrong. <laughs> um, so I guess my, my normal day is most, would be like, I didn't have a rehearsal today. Um, sadly, I'm not playing Electra, which I, this is the first time I have never I've played it twice before, three times before, but this is the first time 
it's been here that I have not played it. It's probably worth clarifying. There's no one person in the orchestra that has the same schedule as the other. Right. We're all on very different schedules. That's a good point. There's seven shows a week at the Met, and um, we uh, have a system of rotation, and then there's also, we're rehearsing, and so everything is, it's a very complicated system. It's not like your normal symphonic orchestra where they do four shows and four rehearsals and everybody does that. We have much more rotation, and uh, the opera rep is so different, and so... Um, I happen to not be playing that, um, but a normal day would be get up. I have two dogs, so I usually am out in the morning with them, maybe like a little yoga or meditation or something if it's going to be a rough day. And uh, rehearsal, um, it depends. The afternoons are sort of our free time, so it depends what's going on, whether I'm practicing for something else. Right now I'm practicing for a lot of things going on, so I'm doing a lot of practicing. And then whatever the show is at, at night. You also have three people who are on our orchestra committee, so we might get called to, to do various things, advocate for our colleagues, do something like that, have a meeting, write a bunch you of know, emails. write emails, um, since uh, that's kind of what, what we're charged with doing. So that takes a lot of time, too. It does. Um, so it just depends. Some weeks can be heavy. If, if you are, like Billy said, you've got certain rep that's really hard. I mean, Electra is really so challenging. And uh, normally I would be playing E-flat clarinet on that, so I would have to be actually getting my chops up for the little baby piccolo clarinet. And that takes a lot of time, too, to learn that and get, get acquainted, reacquainted with it. So. so a lot of it is training your muscles in order to play the different sized clarinets that mm -hmm. you are asked to play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and sometimes I, I really uh, won't have picked up the E-flat clarinet in months and so then to actually go to that instrument it's like oh whoa and so then I have to kind of start all over which would be like mm. scales and some etudes and just getting uh, reacquainted with how much smaller it is pitch reads um, I do different things for different operas uh, like the nose um, that has a ton of e-flat clarinet in it and there are some really tricky things that are screaming screaming high so I have to kind of get that back to. All right, I think we have a clip of the nose, so let's listen to that really, yeah. at least sure. one of these little tricky parts. <laughs> right. <laughs>
Jason, we've heard from both Jessica and from Billy about the sort of uh, personalization of their reads or modifying them so that they work for their instrument or their physicality. As a timpanist, is there some sort of modification that you're doing? Oh, uh, yeah. For so your if, instrument? If, uh, if Billy's cross to bear is making these crazy reads, yes. um, mine is, and this is, this is unique to operatic timpani, I have to rewrite the majority of my parts. Okay. By which I mean, and this is, this is now a lot of the Italian repertoire, um, all bel canto, a lot of Verdi, some Puccini. Um, this came from this tradition where back in that time, the German symphonic music and what was happening with, with Beethoven and, and with Schubert and Mendelssohn, literally the timpani they had were just better. They produced a pitch that was focused and you could hear it. And so the composers wrote for that and that tradition recognized that like, yeah, you're playing actual pitches that matters for the harmony of what's going on. The Italian instruments of that time and what existed in the pits were glorified bass drums. It was just going to like thunk, 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 thunk. And so they would just kind of write like, well, whatever, just, just some rhythms there. And very frequently I'll, I'll get a part for a Donizetti opera, a Bellini opera, and, and I look at it and, you know, the orchestra's playing in E-flat major or something, and I have a written C-sharp and G-sharp, or, or just nothing at all, just like kind of nonsensical pitches, mm-hmm. but the rhythm is indicated. Right. And it sort of, it reminds me, like, I played in big band in, uh, in high school and college, and like a big band drum chart, it like kind of shows you like, okay, do some stuff here, keep some time, okay, do a big fill, and you know, and it's like, this is kind of what, what these sort of timpani parts are like, it's like, okay, there's going to be a big entrance, this is the dynamic, this is what I need to do, but it would be pretty much impossible for me to play a part without spending an extensive amount of time with the score, going through doing a harmonic analysis, figuring out like, what, what are we doing here? What's the function? Do I want to be playing in unison with these people? Is there a compelling reason to be playing the third because now we're modulating and then we're going to get in and that's going to be the new tonic? Like, whatever's happening. Also so, finding where the drum breaks are going to happen. Right. Hey! Very Donizetti. Exactly. So that means you're spending a lot of time with the complete full conductor score looking at what everybody is playing. That's right. And, and so you, you could listen to probably uh, 10 different recordings of a Donizetti or even Verdi opera. And if you really pay careful attention to the timpani part, it's almost never going to be the same between them. Because wow. every, so every operatic timpanist kind of has their own like, take on, on what is idiomatic, what's, what's stylistic and appropriate, right. and, and how you kind of interpret that. So then when you sort of reach that personal interpretation, then do you have a discussion with whoever the conductor is about that? Or <laughs> that is a great how does question. that work? So so I'm so like I said, I'm, I'm at the end of my third season. Uh-huh. I'm still very much in this place where like I'm going through a lot of these operas for the first time. Sure. So once I've done this whole like rewriting process, going back to play it again is much, much easier. Mm-hmm. But there's this huge time investment up front. And so I've been trying to do a lot of that homework and score study during the summer before oh. our whole season starts mm-hmm. because trying to fit it in during the season is just crazy yeah. with the schedule. Of so I was showing up in the first season thinking that, like, yeah, oh, man, the, the conductors are going to be wondering the pitches and, like, what's going on, and everyone's got a, an opinion about this. 
my colleagues won't be surprised to learn that I had spreadsheets full of like my analysis and reasoning so that when the conductor was like, um, Tiffany, re rehearsal H, what, what, are, what are the pitches, uh, you know, and I'd be like, oh, yep, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm playing in unison with the basses there, you know, whatever, whatever interpretation I'd arrived at. It's been almost three seasons. I haven't heard a single thing. <laughs> wow, nothing. So no one's ever and said. This is, I and really this is don't to be like clear. That, this is not a slam no. on the conductors. Yeah. I, I think what's what really going on is that like, you know, we have a limited amount of rehearsal time. A lot of these like core operas, um, we rehearse less than say Electra, which sure. we've been doing now. Um, we'll get maybe a sis probe, maybe one pit rehearsal, and then the final dress, or sometimes just. A sits probe and then a final dress. A sits probe is a rehearsal right. with singers. Yeah, yeah. Not <laughs> staged. Yeah. Right. And so the conductors have so much to be worrying about. Coordinating this and the stage and the, the blocking. And, oh, we can't hear it from up there. Get them up here. And, you know, I kind of think at this point that as, like, as long as the timpani sounds right and there's nothing like grotesquely out about it, there's like, good enough. Right. <laughs> Speaking of grotesque and your and your spreadsheets, Jason, uh, can can you uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, stress chart for the for the season? Well, that's a perfect yeah. Going into this because because that takes so much time, I I needed to be like all right. I need to get this homework done so that when the season begins, I won't be losing my mind. Great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because this whole day in the life thing, it it is nuts. I mean. I think everyone in the orchestra could say that the first few years mm -hmm. are really tough because in any kind of musical training, you're mostly studying symphonic music. Yeah, you really sure. just don't know opera. And so long. anybody that gets a job in the Met Orchestra is basically learning a lot of this operatic rep from scratch. And mm -hmm. you have to learn a ton of it very quickly. Mm -hmm. One of the hardest things for me is like, you know, like I think we were saying earlier, some core repertoire like La Boheme or something doesn't get rehearsed a lot. And so everybody else in the orchestra knows it except me, who was playing it for the first time. And I have to play it as if I have played it a hundred times and sound that controlled and confident and secure. And so, and, and you know, because we rotate and because there's, there's another co-principal timpanist, and I, you know, in that specific case, there was a Bohem sits probe that I played in September. And then there was a run of Bohems, and I didn't play any of them. And then I was going to start playing the show in January. So I had one rehearsal on this opera I had never played, and then stepped in five months later and just had to like have it ready to go. Wow. So that, that required, that, that informs the day in the life thing to be like, okay, how can I arrange the practice and the preparation and all of this to accommodate it? And so I, I devised this thing. Um, Surprising, not at all, owing to my somewhat analytical background, <laughs> where I was, I, I the first season kind of caught me off guard with how some of these weeks would get so intense. Reading our schedule is a little bit like staring at the like trickle of numbers in the matrix, and it's like at first it just it doesn't make sense, and then you start to be like, oh right, there's the lady in the red dress. Okay, I get it. <laughs> um, so, so partway through there, I was like, I need I need a more predictive way to know like when a certain week is going to be ultra intense and I know in advance like I have to have gotten all of my stuff done ahead of time so that that week can be the week where any of my time off that's like sacred time where going out on a walk doing yoga going for a run going for a bike ride just whatever I need so that I can do what's going through that week and so I made like a little algorithm that basically was just like 
Number of rehearsals, number of shows, length of shows. Are the shows, is it uh, core rep? Is it new rep? Is it with the music director? You know, like all these different parameters that end up impacting how hard a week is it going to be. That's on like a scale of one to ten, right? Yeah, it's, you know, yeah. just like, like... A level eight is like a really it's a tough week. week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I put it in a Google calendar and right. shared it with my girlfriend so that she could see, like, oh, oh man. Yeah, don't talk to Jason. Don't talk to him yeah. during this week. Wow, so it literally has now been broken down on when people can ask you for things, uh-huh. when right. would be a good time. This to is a nine-week, don't talk to me. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. I feel That's like you impressive. need to make this into, like, an app so everyone yeah. just remember can, like, enter <laughs> their schedules in and there can be, like, a reading for each each member. Right. <laughs> Color code, like, this is a code orange week, guys. Right, you know. right. Wow. Yeah, I thought you were gonna tell the story of how you had to like cure all of your tippany heads in your own bathroom. Oh well, so that is okay. So there's the there's the rewriting of the parts, right? But then there's the more tympany things, which is like the heads and the sticks. Yeah. So the sticks, the the mallets I play with are mostly uh, my own that I make, kind of for the same reason that I'm persnickety about. <laughs> about my mallets and the way I, I like them to sound. And so, you, you know, I, I build it, you, you wrap it with different kinds of felt, you do all this. Um, I can't, it's sort of like, you know, in Star Wars, like, Luke inherits a lightsaber and that's fine, but he really becomes a Jedi when he makes his own. So, uh, you his know, most timpani, yeah, right. most timpanists will get to making their own sticks. At some there point. we go. I love how we've now connected pop culture with <laughs> yeah. Star Wars yeah. to yes, being right. a timpanist. That's right. Yeah. Every that's young timpanist right. is yeah. now thrilled to become a Jedi. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but so, so a lot of timpani heads, like what what young players will see in their band and orchestras, um, they're made out of plastic, mylar, mm-hmm. actually. Um, it's durable. It's pretty easy to work with. Just a good, solid thing to do. A lot of like higher end um, playing in, in orchestras, the material is actually calfskin, and this has the benefit of a um, a just warmer, more focused, more beautiful tone. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. would um, a- agree and recognize, and you know, there's there's a reason you see that in a lot of top orchestras and top players. Um, it is much more maintenance intensive because it is kind of like a living thing. And it depends on the weather and it'll stretch out or it'll constrict and you have to do it yourself. Right. Like you, you don't get it pre-made, pre-made like a yeah. plastic head. Like you get a rolled, it's like a piece of you know Christmas wrapping paper. It's rolled up into two and you have to get it on the drum. <laughs> and there's this whole like arcane process where you have to get your bathtub water just at the right temperature and you soak it for about an hour and then you take it out and you have this tool and you wrap it around this metal hoop and then you got to dry it a certain way. And I do this all in my apartment because there's no room at the mat. <laughs> and those are the days where my girlfriend is like, it smells like cow in here. What's going on? Oh, God. <laughs> so then if you're making those drum heads for the timpani, does that mean that when it's not your night to play and it's somebody else's, that those heads are being switched out? No. So, yeah, we have a, a kind of unique situation where we have two timpanists playing on the same, same. equipment. Okay. And that, and that is just coincidental. I mean, it's a unique arrangement that we have two timpanists anyway. I don't know of any other orchestra in the West that has that at all. But... Mm. Um, it's just it, it's a it was a, a kind of happy coincidence that both um, Duncan Patton and I prefer the same drums, the same kind of timpani, and we both prefer playing on calf. Great. So we can 
use the same equipment and we just sort of like jointly take care of it. And so sometimes I'm doing the smelly cow thing in my apartment. Sometimes he's doing the smelly cow thing at his house. Um, but so we can at least keep that stuff the same day to day. The smelly cow can be a shared experience. Exactly. Exactly. And to bring to bring it full circle, I think that's actually one of Jess's preferred yoga positions. <laughs> smelly cow. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's great. That's yeah. how she de-stresses from that level <laughs> eight week that yeah. she's having. The smelly cow. <laughs> We talked a little bit about stress and a little bit about um, conductors and sort of the day-to-day work. I think one of the other things that Naomi and I both said was, what is it like to be constantly sort of on a rotation with multiple maestros? So Mm. you may be rehearsing with somebody during the day, but that person is normally not the same person who's going to be conducting a performance that night. So... You guys sort of speak to that experience? I, I think that's one of those things that initially really catches you off guard, but over time you, you get used to it. Mm. You know, I remember my first season, this isn't specifically about conductors, but uh, we, we played Otello at the beginning of my first season, and I remember just being wiped after every single performance. I mean, Otello, it's, it's three hours, so it's not short, but it's, it's sort of a standard length opera, but it's a very intense opera for, for the, the given part that, that the principal bassoon has to play. And it was just such a stressful experience that I was exhausted after every one of them. Then Otello came back at the end of my first season, and by that point I had, I had gotten so used to the schedule and, you know, we had survived Parsifal and Le Troyen <laughs> and, and Don Carlo and these real tests of your endurance. And I remember after my first performance of the of the second run of, of Otello in the spring, I was I was like manic. I, I came home and, and my and my girlfriend said, You you gotta calm down. <laughs> and and I feel like it's it's sort of similar similar with conductors. You you just get used to, okay, this is who's on the podium tonight. I'll I'll, you know, take what I take what I can from from uh, from what they're giving me and do my job. And then over time, as certain conductors come back, do you kind of get to know, is there like a personal style or oh, yeah. absolutely, you yeah. get to know that particular conductor or know how you react to them so oh, it becomes yeah. easier? Definitely. Yeah, I mean, we, I think there's not that many opera conductors necessarily anyway, so you do start mm-hmm. to see a lot of the same conductors over time. And... Um, I, I and I'm one for example who will give just a, a major shout out and hug and kiss to Marco Armiliato, oh, yeah. who is he's one of our kind of standard guys. He comes in and he'll do anything, any Puccini, and he he actually premiered I think Cyrano de Bergerac. I think we should check that. Uh, he was the conductor when we did that, um, or maybe it was Sly. I can't remember. But so he's done new premieres. He's done uh, Tosca, La Boheme. La Traviata, anything, you name it, he does. So I think... And he conducts everything I've seen him is from memory. Yeah, he conducts everything from memory. Really? It's really amazing. He knows everything. And he is just always smiling, and like anything that happens that's unexpected, he'll laugh and and shrug it off. And I think over the years, he knows everybody by name in the orchestra. I mean, you know, so here's a person who's become like a colleague and a friend and um, that you, you see over time. And, you know, then, then we started to have 
obviously with Fabio Luisi, we you know we see some of these these amazing conductors come back, and we mm -hmm. work with them over different kinds of repertoire, and we establish relationships with them that way, and uh, like uh, Noceda, you know, like so mm -hmm. maybe we only see them once or twice a year, but as the years go on, then we start to have a special mm -hmm. relationship with them, and I think they cultivate a certain sound with the Met Orchestra, and in addition to the fact that there are, like Jason alluded to, two timpanists or two principal bassoonists, then there's always a different permutation of players, too. So, I mean, there's a lot of fluctuation, which means that usually people have to listen and know the music and then react, and, and then having the conductor um, is somehow there to make things even better, a, a broader mm -hmm. expression um, of something like a Puccini or La Traviata or something like that. Well, and what can be really nice and rewarding is that once once you see those people coming back, you know, uh, more frequently, for me it's really nice to be able to anticipate what they're going to want and have a, an actual style that I can satisfy. Because, you know, if, if there's a brand new conductor coming in, I have kind of like my default approach to it. It just based on my study of the opera and my general aesthetic and, and what I would do. But our job is absolutely like, yeah, you have you have an opinion, you have a vision mm -hmm. for this, let us satisfy it. Mm -hmm. And so the more people can come back, the more you can really start to understand what that style or vision mm -hmm. is gonna be and in advance kind of deliver it up. Mm -hmm. Well and of course the, the most the most pertinent example of this is with our incredible music director, James Levine who over decades has cultivated a very particular approach to orchestral playing with, with the orchestra. And, and I, I say approach rather than style because he's so sensitive to the styles of the different composers that we play. You know, mm -hmm. Wagner with Jimmy is very different from Mozart with Jimmy is very different from Verdi with, with right. Jimmy. Yeah. And, and that more than anything, you know, I, I know going in that he likes a very sort of bright and light staccato. He likes a very unforced, uh, round sound from the, from the winds. Uh, you know, there are, there are certain things that you know that he expects. Um, whereas for me, with, with some of the other conductors, like if you take Jean-Andrea Noseda, for, for example, who is a, a real favorite of, of our orchestra, um, you know, it's not so much that I go in thinking, okay, this is what I know Noseda is going to like, so this is what I'm going to try to give to him. It's almost, for me, uh, an immediate reaction to what he shows from the podium. You know, he brings so much passion and so much sort of guts to the way he, he makes music with you that you almost have no choice but to respond to him in mm -hmm. kind. Um, and I think, for me, that's a big part of... of how how different conductors get a particular sound out of the orchestra is not out of our intellectual understanding beforehand, but just of their podium presence. I think another really interesting point, which isn't necessarily an answer to your question, Stuart, but um, so is doing the same opera with the different conductors. So oh, right. you know, like so, ah. uh, Billy's first Otello, which was pretty much my first Otello, um, was with with Bichkov, right? Mm -hmm. And then we did it with Yannick Nizé Sagan, and love then him. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? We all love Yannick. He's another favorite of ours. We also um, did it with Alain Altenoglu. Right, Alain Altenoglu came in and did mm -hmm. a run, and then I had to come in and sight read it once with Jimmy. 
and talk about just completely different styles of how to do something and none of them are wrong or right or, or they're just all in, superbly interesting. And so it's just understanding the score for yourself so much more by having these different kinds of styles and what they choose to bring out and, and understanding that everybody is unique and that you know you can make your own expression and, and do certain things in conjunction with what they're asking you to do as well. So I think that's also a really neat thing, oh, having been, since I'm the oldest person here, the 15 year <laughs> person, I started when I was 15. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, but you start to see that and that becomes so rewarding over time as well. It's mm -hmm. like it never gets boring. Well, and as the newest person here, I, I think one of the most amazing and almost intimidating things about joining an orchestra like the Met Orchestra, the Met Orchestra is the most incredible chameleon. Mm -hmm. I mean, in this way, <laughs> to be so adaptable mm -hmm. to all of these different styles. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it, from, from morning to night, I mean, it, uh, you were asking day in the life. Like, it's completely a normal schedule to have a, a bel canto opera in the morning, a... Puccini opera in the evening, Strauss opera the next morning, mm -hmm. uh, a Baroque opera that night, mm -hmm. a Wagner opera. It's just, I mean, mm -hmm. you are all over the map. And it, it, it's sort of, it is a very different kind of artistic lifestyle mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. a symphonic schedule where it's much more linear. Mm -hmm. Like you have, you have your week and it's a subscription concert week and you're doing an all Brahms program and you're working with that one conductor. And so everyone's kind of in that zone mm -hmm. for that week. We have nothing like that. It's it's just all over the place. And one of the in again in my first season, what I was realizing is that like in a symphonic schedule like that that I had done a lot before, you can kind of have the front burner material you're worrying you're worrying about. Like, okay, the concerto that's gonna be fine. I've played that overture a bunch of times. Okay, we're doing Mahler too. I'm I'm gonna like really focus on that. And for like one week, that's that's on my front burner. But in an opera schedule, it was like, okay, so we've got Rosen Cavalier, and oh, right, and also Falstaff. Okay, and, and we're going, oh, wait, I need more burners on my stove at the front. Like, it's, <laughs> it's there's nine. just a lot going on at one time. This is a level, this is a code red week. So, speaking of this kind of variety, this constant changing of repertoire and kind of adapting to whatever is coming up next on your schedule, amidst all of this variety, do each of you have favorite composers or favorite operas? either just for yourself personally or ones that you think really speak to your instrument that you're excited to play on your instrument. Is it possible to pick out one or two amidst all of this variety? Oh gosh, I think that's like the number one question you get asked <laughs> and, and I never know the answer. I mean, the best I can do is is be like, I I love Puccini and we did Menolosco this year mm. and Usually I say La Boheme because I could just play it a hundred times and still love it. Um, but Menelosco was that was really freaking awesome. Um, and uh, <laughs> Billy is shaking his head emphatically. Yes, for those of you who are listening, <laughs> I can't see it. Um, I love playing the ring. It is such a joy to play. It's so hard. It's so long, and it takes so much physically out of you. But it's some of the most incredible music. Um, and um, I love Mozart, and I usually love playing Figaro. That's probably the thing I love the most. So the, I, I have like categories, but then I, then I have to add in Strauss. So 
whatever Strauss we're doing. Strauss. Yeah, I, I yeah. usually love Der Rosenkavalier the most just because it's the most beautiful music, but Ariadne of Noxos is amazing, and I don't normally play that, but I had to bully our bass clarinet, James Onyabaney, off of it because it has like 10 whole notes on bass clarinet, and he would then double on clarinet because there's only two clarinets. So I basically had to like tie him up and put him in a closet so I could play it once. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jim. <laughs> Because I just really wanted to experience it, and, and so then that was my bass clarinet debut at the Met. I played ten whole notes. I can't play bass clarinet because I, I, I cannot actually physically reach the lowest keys. And Jim has enormous hands. Jim is probably the most amazing bass clarinet player in the universe, so I, I'm like so lucky, uh, A, that he agreed to be um, tied up in his closet and let me play, and also because <laughs> I get to play with him. But um, Ariadne is amazing because it's more of a chamber style opera and uh, playing that was incredible like working with my colleagues and mm -hmm. um, uh, I think those are my I mean I'm sure you guys find this too that there are like entire composers you discover in playing opera that if you're only playing symphonic music, you kind of not, like right, like Verdi. Oh my God, I forgot Verdi. Verdi or o Ma Otello, I mean, Don Carlo, or oh. like Massenet. Like, what did Massenet write for symphonic orchestra? I can think of almost nothing. But his operas are beautiful, yeah. and specifically, Massenet was a timpanist, and so he writes oh. some no timpani parts with some real like care, and it's it's just <laughs> gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. Like coming up this next season is Verter. Verter is gorgeous. Oh man. So you do you have to rewrite? Massenet symphony parts are Only they pretty a little good? Bit. Like th th that's in a category where like there are just a couple of changes necessary, okay. but it's not it's not nearly the kind of extensive rewrite that the Donizetti yeah. requires. So it's like a level two. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or but then I also got to say, I mean Strauss operas like Strauss, so, so incredible. And this, in the same way that like when I was a like much younger, and I would think like oh Mozart, yeah the symphonies whatever. And I kind of like I don't think you can really understand Mozart until yeah, you understand exactly. the operas. He was same an operatic. And it's just, right, Strauss wrote amazing tone poems for orchestra. They're great. What? Yep. But, but then I always you say get to people, a Strauss yeah, opera, holy cow. And especially, so there's, a, there's a prominent timpani excerpt that we play in all of our auditions that's from the final waltz in the third act.
So that's a thing. <laughs> that's that's a thing that's on like basically every timpani audition. And so it's kind of fun to get to that part and be like, oh right, now this is the thing. This is the thing that I studied with such an intense microscope. Like it's 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 like it's like if you're in the art museum and you're up at like the Van Gogh and you've like looked at this one four square inch patch of it for like years and years and years, and then you step back and you're like, oh, the rest of this painting is great. Look at this. Mm -hmm. This is such a thrill. That's like that's Rosen Cavalier for me. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's, yeah, huge huge clarinet waltz excerpt too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for, for, for me, it's, it's always a challenging question when people ask me, what, what, what's your favorite opera to play? Uh, because so often, the, the operas that I most love are also the operas that are, I just sort of regard as a lifelong learning process. So, so my, my absolute adoration of them is tinged with, I just wish that I were better for this music <laughs> um, you know Mo Mozart operas Mozart operas buddy just seriously just, just keep at it Mozart operas I, I've talked to both of you about this I, uh, Mozart operas to me are a lifelong learning process yeah. and his treatment of the bassoon is just incredible I mean Jess mentioned Figaro which is absolutely one of one of my favorites also mm -hmm. and you know if you listen to the to the opening of uh, Que Voice Apete it's a clarinet solo. You know, so when you when you listen to that, you hear that it's a clarinet solo, but there's also this remarkable contrapuntal bassoon line that's so characteristic of Mozart's treatment of the bassoon, that you always have something that's beautiful and independent and really contributes something musically, but it's so difficult because it just has to be so gorgeous and refined and controlled that that you just never feel like you're entirely doing justice to the music. You know, taking taking for another example, you know, if you if you listen to the very opening of Parsifal, it's just this this incredible start to an incredible evening. And my, my first season when we played Parsifal with Daniele Gatti, it was one of the absolute highlights of my musical existence. But at, at this very opening, you know, you're playing this one line that's in unison between all the strings, one clarinet, and one bassoon. Second clarinet, I think. I think it's first clarinet. Is it first clarinet that time? It's one of the clarinets. <laughs> I think it was me because Trish and I had to... Anyway, I'm well, sorry. Anyway. <laughs> I don't remember now. So, so you, you, you play this line in unison at the very opening of Parsifal that just starts out of absolutely nothing. And you're, you're sitting there just thinking, oh crap, 
Oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. You, you tune on an A, you wait a few minutes, and then you start on an A flat, which is really helpful. Yikes. And it's And it's just, but it's just the most sublime music that again, you just want to, you want to do absolute justice to it because it can be such a transformative experience. Well, I think we have to hear a little bit of it since you've spoken so beautifully about it. So this is just a little bit of the opening of Parsifal. Right, so you've mentioned uh, certain excerpts that everybody learns in for auditioning and that sort of thing. So this kind of piggybacks on a question we had talked about. What is the process of getting into the orchestra in the first place? So how do you even find out about auditions or how do you prepare? What is it? What does it take to get to that point? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, it's, it's so interesting how we do our auditions because it's blind mm. every single round, wow. which is very wow. unusual. Which is to say there is a screen up. There is a screen so up. So that the people on the committee, jury, cannot see mm -hmm. the candidate. Playing. Right. Cannot, nothing identifying about gender, ethnicity, nothing like that. Just right. all you hear is what they're playing. We have no idea who we've hired until we've offered them a job. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell actually wrote about our audition process in his book, Blink. And he talked mm -hmm. about how we hired the first female French horn player, Julie Lansman, um, back in the 80s, I think. And it's so interesting because what it really forces you to do is listen. Mm -hmm. And I think we're very proud of that process. And basically what happens is we advertise in the, uh, all of the uh, newspapers and things like that that are for musicians. They know to look for those audition. Goes up on websites. Yeah, all, all mm -hmm. kinds of places on our website now. Um, and people apply, they come, we have a preliminary round, and um, we have judges on one side and the candidate comes in and they play the same six or seven excerpts. Everybody plays the same thing. And then we vote, quite simply, that's it. And if you get a majority, you get out of the prelims and you go to the semifinals. Again, totally behind a screen. And same thing, there's probably a larger uh, committee that's sitting there judging, and then um, you would probably play more excerpts of, of these little little microscopic pieces of, of operas that Jason talked about. And then again, again, people vote, and if you, if you pass, if you have the, enough votes, then you pass the final round. And then usually in our finals, there are about four people and vote, they play it probably a lot, maybe a concerto with piano and um, everybody plays the same thing. They might play everything on the list. It could be 15 to 25 excerpts, something wow. like that. Um, and then they vote, we, we pick a winner, we might select a runner up 
Um, and then that winner is notified. They come down and we meet that that candidate. So last we season meet we that did hyperventilating. Yeah, candidate. who just can't believe? Whose I mean, life I still was just completely changed. <laughs> I still remember uh, winning my job and then just like being in total disbelief. Like, wait, are you sure? You know, like, wait, <laughs> really? You know what? Um, and it's. It's a pretty incredible process. I mean, it's. Uh, I think we liken it to the voice when we do our little our, our talks with the with the kids with, for the Met Guild. Then we we say it's kind of like the voice. It's not like American Idol because they're looking at you and they see you. It's more like the voice where the judges are turned around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a pretty stringent process. I think for um, uh, a, a wind instrument, especially like maybe clarinet or flute, there could be anywhere from two hundred to two hundred and fifty applicants. Wow. And then we whittle it really down between the preliminary and semifinal round. And, and so these excerpts, basically they represent, for each instrument, the list of excerpts is different, and they represent kind of the hardest portions of operas or solo portions, or are they designed to kind of show different ranges of that instrument and different techniques and playing abilities? Absolutely. All of that, as well as, yeah, showing your technique on your instrument. Can you articulate? Can you phrase musically? Are you in tune? Mm. Um, you know, do you know style? And I think opera is so different stylistically. So, you, I mean, we, we recognize the fact that people are going to have to learn a lot of new things when they come into the orchestra. But, you know, do they kind of... Will they gel? Will they fit in? You know, can they can they kind of do what we do? To, I think to the too. to the outside observer, it can seem very strange that so much of this process can hinge on just a few minutes worth of music, right? These tiny little excerpts. Um, it seems bizarre. It's like, well, how, how could you possibly know? But it is. I mean, because these excerpts have been chosen and refined over decades and decades, they really become these focal points that can reveal so much mm-hmm. so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it wasn't in Blink, but there was a different book talking about sort of the music process, and it was comparing it to um, Roger Federer, the tennis player, and how it, at, at a certain level you, you are like literally perceiving more about what's going on. And so the people on the jury are hearing an incredible amount of detail from, what's, from what the person is playing, in the same way that Federer had this almost like preternatural ability to anticipate where a serve would go. Mm-hmm. And it, it was very hard to ace, right? And how does, how does he do that? Well, he was, like, looking at the opponent, and the opponent, just the way they would, like, kind of move their hip and shoulder and, like, the elbow would go out here, it would indicate, like, that's probably where the serve is going to land. And most people were just saying, oh, that guy's serving now. And so through these tiny little excerpts, there is just an incredible amount we can tell from, you know, technique and, and time and intonation and rhythm and style and clarity and, and personality and energy and, and character and just all of these things that can be communicated in just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've uh, shared quite a few laughs with you, and we appreciate uh, <laughs> sort of getting this inside look, but one of the questions that Naomi and I thought would be fun to sort of bring these discussions to a close would be, if you weren't a Met Orchestra member and a Met musician, what would you be doing with your life, or what would you like to be doing with your life? Well, Jason's already sort of answered that for himself. <laughs> right. Yeah, there was the nanotechnology thing. It, it was it, I, it was great. It was fun. It was very interesting and compelling. Um, I'm sorry, Jason, I don't think you've actually talked about it on, right, right. on air. Do you want to talk about your... your, your oh, well, I guess I suppose I mentioned... Right, I mentioned that I went to grad school for... Uh, that I was a double major in physics and music. Mm-hmm. Went to grad school for electrical mm-hmm. engineering. Yep. 
worked in Chicago for 10 years as a nanotechnologist, which is, nanotechnology is essentially the study of things on the nanoscale. Do you, I mean, how much time do you have? Two hours. <laughs> Here's the party version. So are we talking like iPod Nano? I don't understand. Yeah, iPod Nano. So, so a, a nanometer is 10 to the negative 9 meters. It's about a thousandth the width of a human hair. And so there are machines and techniques and everything that basically do kind of atomic building block scale stuff. Um, it, on, on one day at work, I happened to create the, I think, smallest known portrait of Homer Simpson. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're basically saving the world. Yeah, you know, saving the world. Um, <laughs> important stuff, guys. Important wow. Stuff. Um, so we, we don't let him ever live that down. Nano, nano art. Nano, nano art. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, what was really interesting for me, though, is like I, I, I had the privilege of being in physics programs and, and engineering programs with some incredibly... Um, bright people who have gone on to do remarkable things. Recently, I mean, just within the last three years, it's been a huge time for physics because they discovered the Higgs boson particle at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, and they discovered gravitational waves. Two of my best friends from physics days were part of those projects. And what I saw when I was in that environment was that those guys were pursuing it with the kind of passion that I had for music. Mm-hmm. And that, so for me, that was, that was the thing I could really throw everything into. I, I, I liked uh, physics. It was great. It was very you know, intriguing and everything. But music was what really pulled me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think if I weren't in music, um, I would not be doing that. <laughs> you would not be a um, nanotechnologist. Very, very, very much not. Jason and I have had several conversations about how I struggle to understand even the most basic physics laws of physics. Um, but I like to think that I would be like in journalism somehow. Oh, okay. I find it really interesting. I like That's to write. I'm, I'm, I'm known to to these guys as Grammar Billy uh, because again yeah. the the persnickety thing. Right. Nobody, For anybody that's read features on the Matt Orchestra yeah. Musicians website, Billy, Billy is, our is in charge of a lot of that content. Does a remarkable job. www.mattorchestramusicians.org. Thank Billy you, runs Jess. all of our edit, like all of all of that content and edits everything and rewrites many of my own <laughs> things <laughs> since I have the neglectful use of commas and various other grammatical things. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, I don't know. I I used to think that I would be a lawyer. Mm. Um, yeah, my mom is a lawyer, my stepdad's a lawyer, and I kind of thought that would be uh, what I would do if I weren't a musician. And um, now I feel like if something were to happen and I, I couldn't play anymore, I still love the art, so I think I would, I would maybe go more on this side of things. And um, I worked at Boston Symphony Hall uh, as an intern in high school and out at Tanglewood, so I feel like I understand arts administration and how things work, and I really, really disagree with the idea that arts and opera and music is dying, so it's like I'm really passionate about that these days, and um, I think it's it's about that, and I think that's where I would be. Great. So aside from your homework that you do over the summer, such as rewriting timpani parts and <laughs> making reads. Do you have any fun summer plans, things that are perhaps not related at all to the Met Orchestra, or even things that are that you're excited about? 
I'm super excited <laughs> that my wife and I are going to be in New York for most of June not playing our instruments. <laughs> because because my, my first season in particular, people would ask me, so how do you like living in New York? And I would say, I have no idea what it's like to live in New York. I can tell you what it's like living on Amsterdam between 60th, where my apartment is, and 64th, where the Met is. But um, the to actually have the opportunity to live in New York and explore New York is something that, for the first time, we're going to take advantage of four years in. So yeah. I'm really excited. Right. That's that wow. excited. Billy's wife is a is a, a French horn player in the, and she commutes between Flo- Florida and New York. Yeah, so, she plays in the yeah, Sarasota was, Orchestra. Mm-hmm. So, so little little long distance thing going. Yeah, <laughs> but we love her. Um, I am am also going to take advantage of being in New York a little bit. Um, I'm going to be at the Verbier Festival um, in July and. That's an incredible thing to do because you're teaching some of like the best up and coming young musicians, um, and, and being in the Swiss Alps being isn't the Swiss that Alps, bad. And, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> hurt. And that festival is incredibly well run. Martin Engstrom, who used to be the former head of Deutsche Grammophon, runs that, and he's just an amazing, elegant person, and just like it's so fun and and a wonderful community. So I'm doing that. Maybe a little traveling, and then um, this this summer, my family and I are renovating. Um, a lake house and so I'll be there with my dogs all the rest of the time with a hammer and and you know um, uh, like doing drywall and installing things and you know so sanding floors and building Sounds cabinets kind of fun. oh it's, it's the best I, I love doing that kind of stuff so it's gonna be great we're looking at floor plans now and Met Orchestra DIY exactly exactly no. I know I'll have to start that on Pinterest or something. <laughs> you can make that an Instagram hashtag exactly exactly I'm gonna do it all summer I'll Instagram it all summer Met Orchestra does life exactly <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's like, you know, we, we do have this break during the summer, which is so necessary just to recuperate and sort of recompose yourself. I mean, even just physically, like we get to the end of the season, especially if there's a lot of long operas, and just our bodies, particularly as string players, mm-hmm. like, oh man, it, it is physically mm-hmm. grueling. So you need some time to just kind of physically recover. But for me, there's like the mental recovery too. Um and one of my favorite things to do, um, actually my girlfriend and I are going out to meet my family in the Grand Teton, so we're going to hang out there, do some backpacking, turn off the phones, go into the mountains for eight, nine days, disappear from the world, <laughs> and then reappear later. It's just, yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do when I'm not playing music. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thank you all for coming in. It's been so amazing to have you. and. Like Stuart said, we've had lots of laughs. I feel like we've learned a lot more about the orchestra than I ever thought would be possible (laughs) in an hour podcast. And so thank you so, so much. And we will look forward to chatting with you again, I hope, sometime in the future. And we wish you all the best in all of your exciting summer plans and as you wrap up the rest of the season. Thanks so so much. much. Thank you for having us. 
Thank you so much for listening to episode 32 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I also want to give another very big thank you to Jessica, Billy, and Jason for joining us for such a fun-filled and informative afternoon. I know I certainly learned a lot about the world of a Met Orchestra member, and I hope all of our listeners feel the same way. And as always, you can subscribe to future episodes of our podcast on iTunes, where we hope you will leave a review or a comment for us. We always love hearing the types of things that you enjoy listening to, and we also like hearing ideas that you might have or topics you want to hear more of, so we can keep that in mind and think about that as we plan future episodes. Also, feel free to check in with us on social media to let us know what you think about this episode. We have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you look up Met Opera Guild, you'll find us on all of those platforms. And next week, we are excited to present an interview with none other than Roberto Alagna, where he gives us the inside story of his last minute filling in as Desgrieux in the Mets' Manon Lescaut earlier this season, as well as some other backstage stories and just insight into his daily life and work. Until then, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.